In the vast open fields at the heart of the Somme battlefields, what connects an English composer, a street in Canada that gave three of its sons who would go on to be awarded the Victoria Cross, a black cat that would go into battle in a fighting vehicle during the birth of tank warfare, and a young officer who collected old books. Walk with us as we uncover these stories along the old front line. We're back on the Somme this week, in the village of Pozières, right in the heart of the 1916 Somme battlefields. In September 1916, when the Canadians moved into this sector, relieving Australian troops, little was left of this village. And you've got to imagine it, raised to the ground by the bombardments of that two months of fighting from when it was captured by Australian troops in July of 1916. Pozières was dust, but beyond it was the Pozières Ridge, that bit of high ground that dominated this part of the battlefield, and that would see the next phase of fighting in this area for the remainder of the month of September of 1916. We'll begin on the albert Bapome Road, the old Roman road that runs through the middle of the village, and we'll turn off on the road to Bazantin and follow that road out of the village towards a bend where off to our left is a track, and on the corner of that junction is a memorial to an English composer, George Butterworth. George Sainton K. Butterworth was born in London, but he grew up in York. He was a Yorkshire boy in many respects. His father had moved there because he worked for the North Eastern Railway, which was based in the city. He went on to be educated at Oxford, and he studied music, and he became a friend of the composer Vaughan Williams. And Butterworth himself composed a great deal of music before the Great War, but very little of it survives. He appears to have discarded a lot of it during the war itself in case he never came back and it was not considered in the long run to be good enough. Perhaps his most immortal bit of music is the banks of the green willow. And as we walk past Butterworth's memorial out into the vast open fields beyond the village of Pozières, we think to the landscape of England the landscape of Yorkshire that had inspired Butterworth to compose this music. It was a landscape that he was prepared to fight and die for. In 1914 he joined the Duke of Cornwall's Light Infantry as a private soldier. A strange choice perhaps for someone living in London, but the Duke of Cornwall's Light Infantry had recruiting offices in London and that's where he joined. Given his background and his education, he was quickly commissioned from the ranks and became an officer in the 13th Battalion Durham Light Infantry and went to France with them in 1915. His war took him down many parts of the Western Front and here on the Somme, in the fields across to the right of this track, was a German trench called Munster Alley. Much of the fighting in late July through August into September revolved around this trench that ran parallel to the track that we're on. And Butterworth's battalion moved up and made an attack here for which he was subsequently awarded the Military Cross. During the action, his men, many of them Durham miners, were required to dig a trench in this area close to Munster Alley, and they named it Butterworth Trench, in honour of their officer. Relieved and out of the line for a while, they returned here, and on the 5th of August 1916, George Butterworth was killed in action, close to the trench that bore his name. The fighting in this area continued for another six weeks, and even in the later stages of the Battle of the Somme, this ground was bombarded 
In March 1918, the Germans broke through here and the ground was finally retaken in August of that year. When the war ended, no trace of Butterworth's grave could be found. This was the fate of so many soldiers who fell in the Battle of the Somme. Buried by their comrades, buried on the ground where they'd fallen, their graves were lost in later battles, and George Butterworth is commemorated by name on the panels of the Thiepval Memorial, not far away. We often discuss men like Butterworth in this podcast. They are the lost voices of the Great War. What would Butterworth have gone on to achieve, given his friendship with Vaughan Williams, and how well-known a composer that Vaughan Williams is? Would Butterworth have become just as well-known? Would his music have defined our remembrance of the Great War? And how would it have defined our view of the 1920s and 30s, those two decades that led up to another conflict? That promise of greatness was never fulfilled with Butterworth, but today, particularly during the Great War centenary, there was a resurge in interest in Butterworth's composing and the music that he'd written. And you don't have to go far on YouTube to find examples of this. Continuing down the track, the village falls away behind us. To our left is the tall radio masts close to the Pozier's windmill site. This is the highest point on the 1916 Somme battlefields. And across these open fields in September of 1916, the men of the Canadian Corps moved in here, relieving Australian units had been battling across this ground over the previous two months. The Canadians had been up at Ypres, holding the line, fighting defensive battles during the gas attack of 1915 and minor actions around Ypres the following year. As a corps commanded by their new commander, Lieutenant General Sir Julian Bing, they were moving into the Somme for the next great attack. But this ground close to the Pozier's windmill site was still held by the Germans, and an assault was needed here by men of the 1st Canadian Division, including the 2nd Battalion Canadian Infantry and Ontario Regiment, to attack across this ground and push the Germans back to enable the big assault, the big push here, to take place. On the afternoon of the 9th September 1916, the men of the 2nd Battalion Canadian Infantry went into the attack. The bombardment opened up, and bayonets fixed. They assaulted the German trenches, either side of the track you're now standing on. These were all German trenches dug in 1915 or early 1916, and the front lines became a bit of a jumble here. So when the positions were taken by these Canadian troops, part of their new line linked up with some of the old German trenches, and the only thing that separated the Canadians from the Germans was a bomb block, a barricade across the trench, in which Canadians were one side and the Germans the other, throwing bombs, grenades at each other with terrible fury. Into this action came Leo Clark. Canadian-born in Waterdown, Ontario in 1892, his parents were English and he'd spent much of his early life in England, but he returned to Canada in 1903. By the outbreak of the Great War in 1914, he was working as a surveyor on the Canadian Northern Railway and enlisted in the 27th Battalion Canadian Infantry, later transferred to the 2nd Battalion to join his brother Charles. This is the account of the action here from the regimental history of the 2nd Battalion. Corporal Clark and Private Soppet abandoned the block-building operations to the others and advanced boldly to meet the Germans. The lighter egg bombs of the enemy outranged them, but keeping them at bay, Clark set about erecting a temporary barricade. Again the Germans attacked. The corporal emptied his revolver into them, refilled and emptied it a second time. Every shot counted. Then picking up a German rifle from the trench floor, 
he fired the undischarged cartridges. But the enemy were now on him. One of the officers, seizing a rifle, made a lunge at the corporal, wounding him in the knee. Clark shot him dead. In their path up the trench, the enemy had left a wake of casualties, yet a few were still capable of putting the corporal out of action. Bleeding profusely, the indomitable youth carried the battle to the Germans once more. However, they had had enough. Turning tail, they fled, and as they scrambled wildly in a panic-stricken mob, Clark picked them off and pursued them until only one was left. A hundred yards away from the block, and the only combatant in sight, the corporal accepted the surrender of the sole survivor and brought him back in modest triumph to Sergeant Nichols. Altogether, Leo Clark disposed of two officers and at least 18 men and captured one prisoner. Corporal Leo Clark had been a one-man fighting machine in this action. In just over 20 minutes, his battalion had taken all their objectives and pushed the Germans back out of this trench. It had cost them 200 casualties, but the enemy dead and the wounded were lying everywhere. Stretcher bearers began the task of picking up the Canadian wounded and tending to the enemy as well, and Leo Clark himself had to be forced to have his wounds dressed and be sent back to the dressing station. For his bravery that day, he was subsequently awarded the Victoria Cross. Before the war, he'd lived in Pine Street in Winnipeg, and when the war was over, three men from that street had been awarded the Victoria Cross. Clark, Sergeant Major Frederick William Hall, and Lieutenant Robert Shanklin, and to honour their bravery, the street was renamed Valor Road, and it's still Valor Road today. I'll put a link on the podcast website so you can read more about it, and there'll be a photograph of the mural that now decorates the street on there as well. Clark was honoured with the award of the Victoria Cross and knew that he'd received it, but his battalion returned to the Somme, and in the actions at Regina Trench in October 1916, Leo Clark was wounded evacuated down the line to a base hospital near La Havre, he died of his wounds, aged 23. Leo Clark was the first Canadian to be awarded the Victoria Cross in an attack in the Great War, and the first to be awarded the Victoria Cross for bravery on the Somme, but not the last. The coming months would see many more, and in 1918, when the Canadians returned and broke through on the Somme, in the blackest day of the German army, more Victoria Crosses would be won in that final campaign. The Somme in many ways is paved with the deeds of these Canadian soldiers. Continuing down the track, we'll move closer to the village of Martinpuy. This part of the battlefield was ground attacked during the Battle of Fleurs Corselette on the 15th of September 1916. This battle that raged from Corselette on the left flank across to beyond Fleurs on the right, around the village of Morval and near Comble, was roughly halfway through the Battle of the Somme and saw some of the lessons that had been learned in the previous two months put into practice. As usual, there were problems, there were mistakes, and there were casualties. But it was a battle, too, that saw a new weapon used for the very first time, the tank. As part of the heavy section machine gun corps, these tanks moved into action on this wide front from Corselettes across to Morval, and also here at Martinpuy. Tanks assisted the men of the Highland Light Infantry, the Cameronians and the King's Own Scottish Borderers, who attacked following their creeping barrage straight into the village of Martinpuy, which you can see ahead of you. One of the tanks that supported the men of the 15th Scottish Division that attacked here was Tank D-20, Daphne. This was commanded by 2nd Lieutenant Harry Drader, who would go on to fight in several tank actions of the Great War and survive the conflict. These early tanks were a vast leap in technology in 1916, but when we look back on them now, they seem quite primitive. 
They weren't properly armoured, they were boilerplate, and this meant that any impact on the outer skin of the tank that didn't penetrate resulted in fragments of white-hot metal coming off on the inside of the fighting compartment and dancing around, injuring the crew. Fumes from the engine made it uncomfortable, hot, carbon monoxide inside the tank that turned many men half crazy and moving these tanks across battlefields like the Somme proved far more challenging than some of the training grounds behind the lines. These early Mark I tanks that were used here had two large wheels at the rear of the tank that was meant to help with the steering but many of them got tangled up in barbed wire or other battlefield detritus and after this action they were abandoned. The tanks here were camouflaged and when we look at images of Drader's tank we can see it's been painted in camouflage. Photographs also show that many of them had what looked like a chicken coop on the top of the tank, chicken wire netting around a wooden frame to protect the openings on the top of the tank from German grenades. Again, this was a device that was largely later abandoned in the subsequent fighting. But despite the problems, despite the heat, the noise, the fumes... The movement of the tank over this rough ground. Drader gave a good account of himself and his crew did likewise. They moved forward at bottom trench and tangled trench and assisted the jocks in making their attack across this ground. They fired into the German positions here, disrupting the defenders and causing a large number of them to flee. You've got to remember that this is the first use of tanks. The Germans have never seen this device before. They have no idea what it is. Initially, they don't even have a name for it. When I did some research in the Stuttgart archives back in the 1980s, I found a contemporary report of the first use of tanks that didn't have a German word for what they were, so described them as an armoured agricultural threshing machine. So imagine being a German soldier here and seeing one of these lumbering armoured beasts coming at you, spitting fire from its machine guns with the female tanks and its six-pounder guns with the male tanks. Drader's was a mail tank, and its left-hand sponson engaged quite a few targets along this track. Back in the 1990s, this was an area that I used to walk in the winter, and one winter, with a friend, I was walking down this track, and just on the bend of it, I found an unexploded six-pounder shell. This was almost certainly from Drader's tank. The position of it, the target that it must have hit, was all correct for it to be fired by the left-hand sponson of D-20 by one of his gunners. After the battle, Drader's tank was filmed by one of the official cinematographers, and they did this because Drader took a mascot into battle, a black cat called Percy. And the film, which I'll put on the podcast website, oldfrontline.co.uk, shows Drader holding the cat in front of that left-hand sponson. So I look at that and think, that's just fired around in action a few hours before, and over 80 years later... I walked the ground and found that round. Now, because it was a live round, I left it well alone. But it just shows how the archaeology of these fields can connect us not only to a place, but a time and a person and a story of the Great War. Percy the Cat has attracted a lot of interest in recent years. The idea of Tommy's Ark, as Richard Van Emden called it, the British soldier's connection to animals in the Great War, obviously appeals to many people, myself included. And I'll put up that little bit of film that shows Percy and the story of it on the website. As we continue along the track, we come down into the outskirts of Martin Puy village. And on the 15th of September 1916, these Scottish troops broke through here and there was house-to-house fighting as they moved through the village. Just as there was across to the left in Corselette at the same time, 
as the Canadians were advancing through there. Leo Clark's sacrifice and the men of the 2nd Battalion who'd broken that last German line of defence had enabled both the Canadians and the Scottish troops to attack more successfully here in that subsequent battle of the 15th of September. Whenever I walk through Martin Puy, I always think of one of the veterans that I knew who lived in Eastbourne, Frederick Baker. Always Mr Baker, he'd served as an officer here with the 13th Battalion, the Royal Scots, and went on to join the regular army after the war. And he acted the officer until his last day, and I respected that. It was a great honour to talk to men like him. He was a great book collector, and as a young man in the Great War, it's really where his book collecting began. Walking through the rubble of this village on the 15th of September 1916, he spotted a beautifully bound volume sticking out of the bricks. It was beginning to rain, he couldn't bear to leave it there, so he picked it up, put it in his knapsack, or possibly gave it to his batman to carry for him, and he carried it away out of the battle. He took it home when he was next on leave, and for many years forgot about it, and eventually opened it up and had a look to see what it was. And it was the register of births, deaths and marriages in this village, going back many centuries. When I first went to see him, he had the book, and he told me that he felt guilty, really, that here he was with essentially the archives of this village, and he felt that he should return it. So he got his sons, and they drove over to the Somme. Mr Baker was a public schoolboy. He spoke perfect French. They drove to Martin Puy, went to the town hall, discovered who the mayor was, went round to his house, and knocked on the door, and Mr Baker said, Would you like your book back? And there, after all those decades, they had returned to them the records of their ancestors, the names and the details of the men, women and children that had lived and died and married in Martin Puy over many centuries. To say they were delighted was an understatement. And for Mr Baker, I think, that it was a way of putting some ghosts of the Somme to bed. He'd taken a bit of that village that he'd rescued and taken it home. The book was placed on display in the town hall, the little Marie of Martin Puy, and I'm pleased to say that as far as I'm aware, it's still on display there today. Mr Baker was one of those veterans who seemed eternal. Somehow, he'd never fade away. And one day he rang me up and he said, um, I fancied uh, a bit of a change, so I'm emigrating to New Zealand next week. And he did. In his 90s, he went off to the other side of the world. And I'd like to say that he's still alive there today, but that's beyond even his possibilities. An amazing man, one of that amazing generation, and someone to think of perhaps when you too pass through these streets of Martin Puy again. Coming into the village, we'll just take a little minor road off to our rights before we continue and walk round to the other side of a field, and in that field we'll see a large German concrete bunker. There were not many concrete constructions on the Somme in 1916, not compared to Flanders and not compared to the forgotten fronts from Luz up to Armentiers, but there were some, and this is one of them. It was not a defensive bunker, it was likely an artillery headquarters, a signalling bunker, because the village of Martinpuy, for the first two months of the Battle of the Somme, was behind the German lines, and first their heavy artillery and later their field artillery had operated in this area, and the bunker and the fields close by, where you can see quite a lot of dead ground, suitable ground for placing gun batteries, this was a position used by them. So returning to the village, we'll continue, and at the first major crossroads, we'll turn right 
and walk out the village in the direction of Longueval. On the outskirts, there's a civilian cemetery on the right-hand side. This was used as a German burial ground during the First World War. All of the German graves have been removed, but a handful of British graves, men taken prisoner by the Germans who died in German hands, are buried here amongst the French civilian headstones. Out in the fields just beyond, and we take a little track to reach it, is Martin Puy British Cemetery, and that will be our next stop. Martin Puy British Cemetery is a small battlefield cemetery on the Somme. There's only 115 burials here, nine of them are unknown, and there's four special memorials to men whose graves were later destroyed in the fighting of August 1918. The cemetery was started in November 1916, at the end of the Battle of the Somme, when this was behind the British front line, which was then around the village of the Saar, towards the Butte de Valencourt. The initial burials were units from the 48th South Midland Division. This was a territorial formation that took over this part of the line, and then it was later used by Australian troops during the winter of 1916-17, when they held that front line during that coldest winter of the war, when frontline temperatures dropped to below minus 25. During that winter, the enemy was not the German army on the other side of no man's land, as the Australians found, but the elements. The elements were the enemy. They had thousands of cases of sickness and trench foot. Trench foot when your feet literally rot inside your boots. Prolonged exposure to the damp conditions in the front line, wet, and then snow, and then wet again, meant that men didn't really stand a chance under those conditions. And a lot of lessons about foot hygiene and the prevention of trench foot were learnt, painfully learnt, during that period. So there's quite a mix of burials here, with a distinct connection to Australians, and perhaps not a cemetery that many Australians would visit during their walks around the Somme battlefields. But when I come here, I always gravitate towards a group of graves from men from my old home county, Sussex, this is a group of soldiers from the 1st 5th Battalion, the Royal Sussex Regiment, the Sink Ports Battalion, a territorial battalion formed in Sussex before the war that had taken heavy losses at the Albers Ridge. We discussed their attack in a previous podcast. And by 1916, they were now the Pioneer Battalion to the 48th South Midland Division. A Pioneer Battalion was an infantry battalion that doubled up as battlefield engineers. Its task was not necessarily to go over the top or fight, but to assist fighting infantry battalions in attacks or in the line with engineering and battlefield engineering tasks, as well as general labour and repairs and maintenance of positions that were held. On the night of the 14th of November 1916, right at the tail end of the Battle of the Somme, they had a group of men who were serving up in the front line around Lassars, close to the Butte de Wallencourt, that old burial ground astride the Roman road between Albert and Bapaume, which was the scene of fighting at that time. As they moved up from Martin Puy to go towards the front line, they had a carrying party under an officer, 2nd Lieutenant Baker, and he was leading the men up the track to take the rations to the men in the front line when they were caught by a bombardment. The resulting casualties saw most of the ration party wiped out, either killed or wounded, and the dead were all buried here, Baker among them. So, so many stories in cemeteries like this, even the small ones, not necessarily of men with bayonets fixed going over the top into battle, 
but men killed in the day-to-day activities of trench warfare, bringing up the rations was just as important as supplying the front lines with bullets and bombs. Soldiers couldn't do anything without food and drink. But the ration parties loaded down with the gear that they had, moving across open ground, albeit at night, were still vulnerable, as this little group of graves from men from Sussex-by-the-Sea demonstrates. We'll leave the cemetery, take the path back to the road, and walk back into Martin Puy village. At the main crossroads, we'll turn right and walk down past the church to the area in front of the town hall, the Marie, where Frederick Baker's book is still on display. The Marie is not always open, but when it is, I'm sure they'll show you the book. But also here, in front of what was once the school, is an archway and a series of red brick Lutyens-like arches crossed to the left. This is a memorial to the 47th London Division, another territorial formation recruited from battalions from the London area, battalions like the Post Office Rifles, Civil Service Rifles and the Poplar and Stepney Rifles, for example, all of whom fought in this area in 1916. They had captured High Wood on the 15th of September and then took part in the fighting between High Wood, Martin Puy and the Butte-Wallencourt in the final phase of the Somme battles, particularly in October of 1916. So they built two divisional memorials on the Somme, one to commemorate the sacrifice of High Wood, and another here, a more practical one, to assist with the rebuilding of Martin Puy and supply an entrance to the school and a shelter for the children in the playground. And this is what we see here today, commemorating the loss of those London lads in the fighting here in 1916. We'll then continue along the main road in Martin Puy and out into the tree-lined avenue beyond. The fences here contain many barbed wire posts, original barbed wire pickets. We're now following in the footsteps of that Sussex ration party and of the Australian troops who moved to and from the front line here during that cold winter of 1916-17. Coming back down this valley must have been a blessing to them because it meant they were moving away from the front line to rest billets and warmth behind the lines. A little bit further up, the road bends and the track goes off to the left. This is the site of the old railway line, and ahead in the distance is the village of Lasars, and beyond that we might see the tops of the trees on the Butte de Wallencourt. There the Battle of the Somme came to an end, and there's another day to explore the old front line. You've been listening to an episode of The Old Front Line with me, military historian Paul Reed. Do take time to subscribe to us via your favourite podcast service. Tell us what you think using the hashtag Old Front Line. You can follow me on Twitter at Somcore and the podcast has its own Twitter feed now at Old Front Line Pod and have a look at the podcast websites oldfrontline.co.uk Until we meet again along the Old Front Line.